Babylon caused Israel many problems in their time together, but Israel was not without blame. It was their sin that drove them into exile out of the presence of God. There isn't a much worse predicament to be in than being cast out of the presence of the Lord. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We are in an expositional study in the book of Jeremiah. In today's passage, a summary of the fall of Jerusalem is laid out here in the last chapter of Jeremiah. This was a much-needed reminder of God's holiness for Israel, as well as for us here in the 21st century. Well, Phil, Jeremiah ends with a historical summary, and we learn through that that the king is still in captivity. Is that a hopeless ending, or is it a hopeful one? Well, it might seem hopeless, Mark. The king is still in captivity. There's no final deliverance here for the people of God. But, you know, this reminds me a little bit of a movie in a series of movies where right at the end of the movie, you see that the hero is still alive and there's still some hope for the future. I mean, it's a little bit like Star Wars where you come to the end of a movie and you've got Luke Skywalker and he's this little baby or this little child and you you have some hope that some deliverance will come in the future. And that's what the ending is like because you have Jehoiakim. He's still in captivity, but he's released from some of the bonds of prison. He's given a place at the king's table. And the point is that the royal line of David is still alive, and there's still hope for all the promises of God to be fulfilled in a coming Savior. Well, as we look back on all the many sufferings that are recorded in the book of Jeremiah, the question would have to be, how can the church today avoid the same kind of stumbling blocks that Israel encountered? Well, Mark, that's a good question for the end of our studies in Jeremiah. And we have seen a lot of suffering. It's true. And it's all the suffering that comes from sin and particularly from people who have forgotten their God who are just content with living the life the way they've always lived it without really turning to God in repentance and faith. And I think right at the end of Jeremiah, we should be reminded of the call that the Lord Jesus gives us to turn away from our sin, to come to him in faith, and not to live just a complacent spiritual life where we're content with all our old sins, but see the need for the transforming grace of God, which only comes to us in Christ. Thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 52 and listen to God's Word for us today. What would you say if you lost everything that you have? And how would you say it? When Jeremiah's beloved Jerusalem was destroyed, he said it like this, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. Bitterly she weeps at night, Tears are upon her cheeks. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary. This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit." Those are the words of a poet. They come at the beginning of the book of Lamentations, in which Jeremiah mourned the city that he loved and lost. But the book of Jeremiah does not end with the verses of a poet or with the expectations of a prophet. It ends not even with the words of Jeremiah. As we read at the end of 
chapter 51, the words of Jeremiah end here. So the book of Jeremiah ends rather with the facts of some unknown historian. And this scribe who added the ending to the book of Jeremiah wanted us to know where Jeremiah's work ended and where his work under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit began. And this scribe was no poet. What he had was an historian's eye for detail. He doesn't shed any tears for Jerusalem. He simply reports how the city was captured. He doesn't tell us how he felt. He just tells us what happened. And what he says is that when Jerusalem fell in the year 586 B.C., it was dethroned, demolished, desecrated, and depopulated. First, it was dethroned. We find this in verse 1 and following. Jerusalem's troubles began with an act of royal rebellion. Zedekiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he rebelled against the king of Babylon. So the armies of Babylon marched on the city to teach Zedekiah a military and a spiritual lesson, and they camped outside the city and built siege works all around it. This is how war was waged in ancient times. Attackers would surround the city, and then they would bring their great siege engines against the walls of the city, and they would pound and pound at the gates of the city until they collapsed. In this case, since the city was kept under siege until the 11th year, it took more than a year for the city to fall. One can only imagine how desperate things became in the city at the end of the siege. Jeremiah described it like this, Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can be had only at a price. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Thus, quoth the poet. But the historian is more matter-of-fact. As we read in verse 6, by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. And then, just as the food ran out, the Babylonians breached the walls of the city. In that moment when the fate of the city hung in the balance, the soldiers of Judah lost their nerve and they ran for the wilderness, and yet there was no escape, especially for the king. The Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah, verse 8, and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. As we have read there, he was witness to the slaughter of his sons and then He was blinded and put in prison. So much for the king. He was dethroned. What happened to his kingdom? Well, it was demolished, as we read in verse 12 and following. The excavations which have been done along the edge of the Kidron Valley confirm that the Babylonians systematically tore down the walls of Jerusalem. And then they burned all the great buildings of the city, and the fire spread, and finally the whole city was burning. Even the beautiful cedars, which Solomon had imported to build the palace, became nothing more than fuel for the fire. This, too, is all part of the archaeological record, for among the ashes of Jeremiah's Jerusalem have been found Babylonian arrowheads. 
Next, the invaders committed the ultimate sacrilege. They desecrated the temple. And this is what we read in verse 17 through to verse 23. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars and the bronze sea, and they carried all the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the trimmers and the sprinkling bowls and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. These were the things used in the worship of God for lighting candles and for tending the altar and for making various sacrifices. As we read in verse 23, this inventory is precise down to the very last pomegranate. You see, these things were written by an historian who wanted to get his facts straight. Babylonians recovered more bronze than they could even weigh. That bronze sea alone must have weighed tons, eight feet tall, 15 feet in diameter. It could hold more than 10,000 gallons of water, all solid bronze. The Babylonians were interested in more than sprinkling bowls and bronze. Once they had dethroned and demolished and desecrated Jerusalem, they proceeded to depopulate it. And the sack of Jerusalem marked the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, 70 years in exile for the people of God. Judah went into captivity, and since this is a history, the writer makes careful count of all the Jews who were deported, so many in the seventh year, so many in the 18th year, and then again so many in the 23rd year. Since these totals are somewhat smaller than the ones that we find in 2 Kings, they probably include only the male adults. And in all, some 20,000 Jews were taken into captivity. Those are the facts. But what do they mean? What is their interpretation? What spiritual lessons can be drawn from the fall of Jerusalem? Well, the most obvious lesson is that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is a righteous judge who brings to account all people for their misdeeds. The key to interpreting Jeremiah 52, and indeed many of the events of the whole book of Jeremiah, comes at the beginning of this chapter in verse 3. It was... Because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. And so if you wonder why Jerusalem was destroyed in this way, wonder no longer. The city lies deserted because of the Lord's anger. The cause of the Lord's anger was sin, as the Scripture clearly implies. And really, after all the sins of Judah, after all the idolatry and adultery, after all the injustice and all the ingratitude and all the rest of it, which Jeremiah has preached against for these many long years of his ministry, really this is the only suitable way for Jeremiah's book to end. The siege and the famine, the fire and the looting and the captivity and all the rest of it, these were no more than the citizens of Jerusalem deserved turning away from God and rebelling against His law. It's significant that God speaks here of casting His people from His presence. 
To stand in the presence of God is the greatest blessing that any human being could ever know. It is the hope of every believer. One thing I ask of the Lord, wrote the psalmist, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. To stand in the very presence of God is a blessing reserved only for those who know and love the Lord. The presence of God is no place for sinners. The unholy cannot survive the presence of the Holy One. This was David's fear when he sinned against the Lord. He prayed, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Yet this is exactly what happens at the end of the book of Jeremiah. God's people were banished from God's sight because of their sins. And the fall of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon were expressions of the holiness of God. Not only His holiness, but also His justice. It is good and right for God not to leave the guilty unpunished. He had warned His people many times that exactly these things would happen if they refused to repent for their sins and to return to Him. Let me just remind you of some of the things that Jeremiah promised. He said enemies would come from the north. He prophesied that they would surround Jerusalem. He foresaw that the city and the countryside would lie in ruins. He foretold of famine and of death in the streets. He warned Zedekiah that unless he repented, he would be handed over to Nebuchadnezzar. He prophesied that Jerusalem would be burned to the ground, even describing how the palace cedars would be cast into the flames. He warned how the Babylonians would loot the temple. And then, finally, Jeremiah told how God's people would be carried into exile. And so, Nearly every verse of Jeremiah 52 is fulfilled prophecy. In fact, reading this chapter is a good way to review the entire book of Jeremiah. The facts speak for themselves. Jeremiah was a true prophet. And throughout his ministry, he always spoke the true Word of God. In this chapter... Not only is Jeremiah vindicated, but also God himself is vindicated for his holiness and justice. Here we have proven for us that God says what he means and then does what he says. And as the citizens of Jerusalem gazed upon the smoldering remains of their city, they ought to have called to mind the many prophecies that they had heard from the mouth of Jeremiah should have recognized that they had brought all these things upon themselves. Long before Jeremiah prophesied, chapter 21, verse 14, I will punish you as your deeds deserve. The fall of Jerusalem teaches that God is a righteous judge who does not leave the guilty unpunished. As he comes to the close of his commentary on this chapter, Matthew Henry writes that the justice and truth of God are here written in bloody characters. 
for the conviction or the confusion of all those that make a jest of his threatenings. Let them not be deceived. God is not mocked. Now, it remains the case that the Bible contains many warnings about the judgment still to come. It says that the wages of sin is death. It promises that a day of judgment is coming when Jesus Christ will return in power and might. It announces that it is appointed to a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. It threatens also that all the enemies of God will be banished from his sight forever. And what God says, he will and must do. This is what the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians. He said, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. These Many similar warnings of judgment ought to give us very sober thoughts about the life to come. It is this fear of divine judgment which compels us to preach the message of salvation in Christ. And it ought also to compel you to receive that message by faith and to believe in Christ. A final judgment is a myth, and the work of Christ on the cross is little more than an irrelevance. Yet, if judgment is a certainty, then the work of Christ on the cross is a necessity for all those who would be saved. There is no other way to be saved except through the work of Christ on the cross. Earlier, we quoted from the letter to the Hebrews, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say this, goes on to say that if we wish to be saved in the day of judgment, that we must put our trust in Christ. The Scripture says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. As Jeremiah waited for the coming of of the Savior. And there is a second spiritual lesson to be drawn from the fall of Jerusalem, and that is that these events plead with us to remain faithful to the Lord. Jerusalem had every spiritual advantage. It was built to be God's chosen city, was governed by God's chosen king, populated with God's chosen people. Best of all, it was the location for God's chosen temple. And yet all of this was lost, all lost because God's people did not remain faithful to him. You know, Jeremiah warned about this many years before God sent him on a field trip to Shiloh. For several hundred years, Shiloh had been the place where God had made his dwelling on earth. The tabernacle was set up at Shiloh with the ark of the Lord inside it. Yet since God's people did not remain faithful to God, by Jeremiah's day, Shiloh had become nothing more than a ruin. 
And the Lord said, Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of all the wickedness of my people Israel. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. You see, now by the end of the book of Jeremiah, Jerusalem had become like Shiloh. Even the temple which bore the name of God was pillaged by pagans. It became another one of God's former addresses. And the fall of that temple pleads with us to remain faithful to the Lord. No tabernacle, no temple, no Church has a permanent lease on God's Spirit. Consider all of the advantages that we have in this church. Consider the way that because this is a Christian church, we bear the very name of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. Consider the way, like Jerusalem, that this is the place of God's presence, how when we gather for worship, the Holy Spirit is among us to help us. Consider the way, like the temple, that this building, this congregation, everything about us has been given first to our forefathers. You see, we have every spiritual advantage that Jerusalem had. And yet, the day could come when God would foreclose on His spiritual loan to this church. Imagine for a moment what moving day would be like. Imagine the hymnals stacked and boxed to be recycled. Imagine the pews carried out through the back doors of the church and onto a truck on Spruce Street. Imagine some of the artifacts of the church, perhaps our beautiful windows or some other artifact sold at an auction destined to become I suppose, as I have seen in various places in the city, decorations for a themed restaurant. Imagine this church building becoming perhaps a mosque or a museum, or even worse than any of those things, imagine this congregation continuing to bear the name of a Christian church and yet not actually having the living presence of the Holy Spirit with it for worship what would look like a church from the outside, nothing more than a spiritual wasteland within. You know, there are many Shilohs in Center City, Philadelphia. Some of you know that I make a practice of going around and sort of collecting them. A Shiloh is any building which used to be a church which is now used for some other purpose. There's a beautiful Shiloh in the 2100 block of Chestnut Street. The promotional material calls it the Church of the New Jerusalem and explains how conversion into a modern office complex complements and enhances the beauty of this historical landmark. It's a lovely place to do business, they say, almost sacred. The ceiling is high and vaulted. The woods are rich. But God is not worshipped there. The gospel is not preached there, and men and women are not saved there. 
It is good for every Christian to survey the Shilohs of the neighborhood or to survey in the Scriptures the ruins of Jerusalem and to say, Never, Lord, not in this church, not in this heart. But it could happen. It could happen even here that we would become another spiritual wasteland. If it could happen in Jerusalem, then surely it could happen here. If it did happen, surely we would mourn for it the way that Jeremiah mourned Jerusalem. We would say, how deserted lies the church. But our sorrow would include the confession of sin. For as we lamented the passing of the church, we would be forced to admit that we were part of the problem. The church declined because we declined. We were content with what we had already achieved in the Christian life. We did not renew our repentance daily. We lived in the past without looking to the future. We confronted the sins of others without ever confessing our own sins. We knew how to talk like Christians, but we did not love the Lord. You see, the truth is that this church is as desperately needy for the grace of God as it was on the very day that it was founded, and that we ourselves are as desperately needy for God's grace as we were in that first moment when we came to Christ in faith and repentance. We need to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, our constant need for dependence upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fall of Jerusalem pleads with us to remain faithful to the Lord and to throw ourselves again and again on the mercy of Christ. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for us? Is there any hope at the end of the book of Jeremiah? Well, there is hope, and it is the greatest hope of all. There's an ancient Jewish prayer for the city of Jerusalem which goes like this, To Jerusalem thy city return with compassion, O Lord, and dwell therein as thou hast promised. Rebuild thou thy city speedily in our days, O God, a structure everlasting, and the throne of David thy servant speedily established there. Blessed art thou, O Lord, the builder of Jerusalem. You see, this is the only hope for the city which lies deserted. It is the hope that God would rebuild what his people through their sins have destroyed, and that he would send his servant to rule on David's throne. The hope of a king is held out in the closing verses of the book of Jeremiah. I suppose it would be too much to expect Jeremiah to have a happy ending, but at the very least it has a hopeful ending. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the king of Babylon released Jehoiakim and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings. So Jehoiakim put away his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate at the king's table till the day of his death. And this ending is hopeful because it shows that Jehoiakim was still alive and well after nearly four decades in prison. Thirty-seven years after he arrived in Babylon, he set aside his prison clothes and wore his royal robes 
again. He was given a seat at the king's table. In fact, tablets have been discovered near the Ishtar Gate in Babylon, which record the fact that Jehoiakim, who is called the king of the Jews, received a daily allotment from the king's table. Now, this is important because Jehoiakim was David's rightful heir. Remember, as we've studied this month, that all through his messianic prophecies, Jeremiah promised that God would put a son of David back on the throne. And the ending of Jeremiah's book shows that the line of David was not extinguished and that there was hope that God would send a king to save his people. Now, some scholars doubt that Jeremiah has a hopeful ending. One reason for this is that they deny that the Messiah could come from Jehoiakim's line, and their argument is a good one. It's based on the prophecy at the end of Jeremiah 22. I suppose this has been, if not my last puzzle in Jeremiah, perhaps my greatest puzzle, for the Scripture says, "...record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime." For none of his offspring will prosper, none will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. This is Jeremiah 22, verse 30. And these verses form a messianic puzzle. If Jehoiakim will be considered childless, why did he have children? And if none of his offspring will sit on David's throne, then what are we to make of Jesus of Nazareth, who was a direct descendant of Jehoiakim? I think the best answer to this problem is discovered in a recent book just come out in the last month or two by J. Carl Laney. What Laney says is that verse 30 is not spoken about Jehoiakim at all, but about Zedekiah. Laney argues that this chapter of Scripture, Jeremiah 22, which begins with an address to Zedekiah and a warning to him about the fate that will befall him if he does not return to the Lord, also ends with words to Zedekiah. And in the chapter, Jeremiah uses the three previous kings of Judah as examples to Zedekiah of what will happen to him if he does not return to the Lord. So, Laney concludes, the prophecy concludes with application to Zedekiah. He is the man who would die childless and have no descendant on the throne of David. And this is precisely what happened. With the capture of Jerusalem, Zedekiah's children were slain, and the king, as we have read, was blinded and exiled to Babylon. None of his descendants sat on the throne of David. I believe this solution is the right one. It places the curse where it belongs on Zedekiah rather than on Jehoiakim. And if there is no curse on Jehoiakim, then the ending of Jeremiah holds the promise of a sequel. This is the close, the final chapter of one story, but only the beginning of the next. If you want to read the rest of the story, it begins in the Gospels. And it begins like this. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, that is to say Jehoiakim, was father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. 
Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You see, that is the happy ending that Jeremiah always longed for, but never got to write. Yet it is for us, if we trust in this Jesus who is called Christ, it is for us a happy ending, the happiest of endings, because this Jesus was sent to save us from our sins. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks And for all the many sufferings of your people and all the many sufferings of your servant, Jeremiah, that in your wrath you always remembered mercy, that you preserved the royal line and have sent for us a Savior to build your eternal city. And we ask and pray that you would be at work to build it in our hearts and in our church, and in our city, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.